All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our Facebook live segment, Caring Conversations, where we look forward to bringing topics that are relevant to our clients, their families, our care teams, and our healthcare partners. My name is Julie Collada, and I'm the founder and president of Open Arms Solutions. And Open Arms is a home care company, and we provide a professional care team of caregivers and care coordinators to help seniors and their families navigate the challenges of aging and illness, and proudly we support their dignity and independence in their own homes. With me today is Dr. Sherry Allen. I'm thrilled that you were able to join us today, and our, our topic is what is a neuropsychological evaluation and how can it help people? So it's such an important topic. I'm really excited to dive in with you and uh, learn more about it. Um, but let, let me share your bio, your very impressive bio. So Dr. Sherry All is passionate about empowering people to use their brains brilliantly, I love that, to live better and lead better and love better. She is an international speaker writer, licensed clinical neurorehabilitation psychologist, uh, brain health expert, and the owner and director of the Chicago Center for Cognitive Wellness. Um, her forthcoming book, The Neuroscience of Memory, which is that's a pretty cool thing to say, and I bet you for you to hear. Um, seven skills to optimize your brain power, improve memory, and stay sharp at any age due out in early 2021 in in the first of, of a series of neuroscience books that inspire purpose, leadership, and spectacular living. I love that description. And I'm really looking forward to reading it. Uh, so welcome. Thank and you. I've heard a lot about you from um, Scott Toland, who's on our team, and I've been so looking forward to meeting you. Um, Sherry, tell us, me and the listeners, a little bit about how how you ended up where you are now. How did you end up in in uh, in memory care and ultimately founding the Chicago uh, Wellness for Cognitive Wellness? Yeah, thank you, thank you, Julie, so much for having me. Welcome, everybody. So, um, so I think you know, I I really got interested in psychology pretty early on in um, probably middle school. And, um, and, you know, in, in kind of figuring out like which path I was going to take, um, I was going to go for a social work degree and, and the program I was going to apply to required a year of work experience. And so um, the job that I took was actually as a care provider in a really small 10 resident assisted living home wow. in, in Colorado, in, in Longmont, Colorado, a, a, a Jerry, a, a gerontologist had uh, built on the back of her historic home, and uh, and so and so I did everything. I you know I had two bedrooms a day to clean, and bathrooms, and make lunch, and be entertainment, and and have just a lot of fun with older adults. And and I because um, I knew I wanted to work with adults, and I'm really fascinated by kind of what happens when you know what in the brain when when things start to kind of break down and um and so during that period of time i, I was reading a lot of oliver sacks books and kind of kind of clinical case studies of, of famous neurological um 
cases. He's the he's the person who wrote. If you're not familiar with Oliver Sacks, he wrote the 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 book Awakenings, that was a movie with Robin Williams. Um, I know Parkinson's yes. disease. He has like a whole you know series of case studies and. Um, and so that just kind of, you know, spurred this love of, of wanting to know, you know, like, where's memory in the brain and where, you know, where are all these other thinking skills? And, and so I got to work with some really amazing folks with Alzheimer's disease, some other dementias, and, you know, and just really kind of figured out that that's the direction I wanted to go. And, and so I was able to go to a graduate program in clinical psychology that had a specialty track in neuropsychology. And um, so I got a really great uh, training in in neuropsychology, kind of figuring, you know, like brain behavior relationships. And um, but actually, naively, I thought that clinical neuropsychologists did a lot more fixing of the problems. <laughs> that field is is a lot of uh, kind of just figuring out what's wrong and telling you what it is, and which was what we're going to talk more about today. Um, and which is great and because uh, you do need to figure out what's wrong, but I also wanted to find out more about what to do about it. And so I was able to get some training experiences where I learned some cognitive rehabilitation interventions. And that's why I started the Chicago Center for Cognitive Wellness um, back in 2012, was to really try to fill in kind of a treatment gap for, um, for people who have, had an evaluation, you, you get a diagnosis of memory loss, but then what do you do about it? And and so clinically, my team, we, we help with that. So we do do neuropsych evals, which we're gonna talk more about, and then we do a lot more of kind of what the what's next. And we actually get referrals from other neuropsychologists to sort of help with that. So um, so that's kind of how I got to where I am today. Um, great yeah. story. I love hearing people yeah. story. foundation. I mean, the fact that you got to spend time with older adults caring for them in that in that setting um, is really tremendous. That's a great, yeah, like a I great story. And, a, and, a and here topic. I am. <laughs> yeah, that's really great. So let's talk a little bit. Let's uh, talk about a little, some of the questions I think might, that viewers might want to, you know, want us to discuss. Fundamentally, what is a neuropsychological evaluation? What is it? Yeah. So it is, it's a medical intervention um, and it's, it's really similar to IQ testing. Um, so I think a lot of us are kind of familiar with, with IQ testing um, where we're, we're measuring what's going on in your brain objectively. So, um, and, and so, so in so many ways, it's like IQ testing because it's standardized tests. We're giving you in a lot of cases, paper and pencil based tests of your thinking skills, memory, attention, executive functions, which are like planning, inhibition, your ability to kind of switch your focus back and forth, multitasking. We're looking at other things too, like your visual spatial abilities, your language and um, and quantifying that it's an objective measurement of these thinking skills and it's standardized, meaning that we take your scores and then compare them to similar people, your age, um, similar educational background, those sorts of things. And, um, and, and so those scores are also kind of interpreted holistically by a trained neuropsychologist um, to, to really kind of get a good picture of, so, you know, if you're, you know, if you are struggling on some of these tests, what do we think that's due to? Is it 
Um, we'll, we'll think about your background and sort of the progression of your symptoms. You know, are, are your memory problems coming along suddenly? Is it gradual? Um, what types of day-to-day -day challenges are you having? What's your medical history? Um, have, you know, what do, what do your lab values look like? Have you had an MRI and what does that look like? And then, and then also, getting some um, behavioral observations. We're gonna look at how you're doing behaviorally. Like, are there some changes in your gait or your posture or the way you speak that, that are all gonna get interpreted in with those scores in order to kind of produce um, a report, which is to say, you know, this person has some memory decline. It's worse than normal aging, you know, given sort of the course of the history and these lab values and their MRI, it's consistent with what you would normally see in Alzheimer's disease. And, and, and so a neuropsych assessment really is kind of the gold standard for making a diagnosis of dementia because the, uh, dementia is not a disease. It's it's a syndrome. It's a it's a group. It's a grouping of symptoms. Sometimes it's caused by disease. Sometimes it's caused by injury. It could be caused by lots of different things. But but in order to diagnose dementia, which we're now actually calling neurocognitive impairment, the the gold standard in the diagnostic criteria is to have objective memory testing, and and neuropsych testing is the gold standard for that. So so that's so that's what it is. It's it's a you know you're sitting down with. Um, a trained neuropsychologist or their technician going through kind of a series of tests. It can take a little while. It can take anywhere from like two to eight hours. These appointments can kind of, they're, they're on the longer side because we want to get like a really good objective view of, of how your memory and all your other thinking skills are performing and, and then be able to say, this looks a little bit worse than or than normal aging or, you know, it's normal aging. Let's not worry about it, you know. Um, so, yeah. yeah, that's great. So, thank you for explaining that. Um, I th think you kind of mentioned that, you know, where you would get uh, this kind of exam. But can your primary care physician, like when my mom started to show signs of uh, confusion and and memory loss, um, you know, I was in denial for a long time. I'm sure you see that. Of course. You know, that's a, it's a very, you know, our families go through that and I, you know, it's just hard to watch, right? You try to say that, that didn't really happen. My mom, oh, she just forgot. But yeah. then when it became apparent after two weeks of, you know, things I was observing that wasn't her normal, normal behavior, um, we took her to, I took her to a primary care physician. Can the primary care physician do this kind of examination? Great question. So, um, so primary care physicians often are equipped with what what we would consider a cognitive screener. So you may have heard of there are lots there are a few of these. There's the mini mental status exam. There's some newer ones, the MOCA, the SLUMS. Um, there's one called the BASS, and and even the um, they have there are some cognitive screening items incorporated into the annual Medicare physical protocol that that uh, is kind of required for, for Medicare recipients. It's it kind of part of the annual physical that, that a physician's going to do. And so um, so it's great that we that physicians are set up to have these screening items. Um, but that's not the same as neuropsych testing. 
And so the, the difference is that a neuropsychological examination is going to be much more detailed and way more sensitive. So um, it's pretty common that, especially in the earlier stages, that somebody can completely ace the screener with the primary care physician and still be having some early changes. And, and we wanna know about those. You know, the sensitivity of the items that are included in the, the Medicare screening, um, you, you're really, if you're, if you're not gonna do very well on that, you're already probably in the moderate stages of dementia at that point. So we're, we're missing a lot of kind of early stage um, types of problems. So, so it's not really the same, but, but it is good that, that these screeners are, are out there in, in doctor's offices, because, you know, imagine if you had to wait <laughs> to get an appointment with like a bariatric surgeon to find out how much you weighed, right? Like uh, if, if neuropsychologists are kind of hoarding all of the cognitive assessment, then that's kind of the, 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 the atmosphere that we're creating. But, um, but yeah, so, so that's the kind of the major difference. Okay. I appreciate that very much. Yeah. Uh, so are these tests, is your test covered by insurance? Yeah. You mentioned Medicare. So right. Med so, yeah. So, um, so, neuro so neuropsychology is considered a medical intervention and or like a medical test. And so Medicare covers it. You And Medicare will cover a neuropsych examination annually. You can get one every year. Um, you do need a physician's referral as part of the billing for um, for that, but you don't really need a good reason. So, a, you know, a reason of, you know, I'm concerned about my memory, that's a good enough reason. And and usually it's just got a more of a formality that the physician just kind of writes a script and sends it over. And then we just kind of keep it for, for our billing records. Um, if you don't have medic, if you're not on Medicare yet, uh, so other, other plans like Blue Cross and Aetna, um, it's still considered a medical intervention. Um, we're going to bill it usually to the medical side of your policy. Um, it, it may hit your deductible. So, so that may be a situation where it becomes a little bit more expensive. If you have a several thousand dollar deductible, then, then, and you haven't covered that yet, then, then that's going to come out of your pocket. But if you have just kind of regular Medicare part B, no supplement, um, you're kind of your max out of pocket is is maybe a couple hundred dollars. If you have a good supplement, you're probably not going to pay a dime for, for one of these. Great, great. So here's here's a question that I always have, and I know a lot of I'm imagining a lot of people have. Why would you want to know? Right. Why would you want to know? I mean, and it's like, you know, what 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 how what what do you do after you find out? Right. Yeah. I think a lot of people avoid getting cognitive testing because they don't want to know. Right. And and it's kind of like, what's the point? Right. There's there's this mythology that, you know, we don't have a cure for for any type of dementia at this point. Um, and and so there is kind of this collective mythology that. If you can't do nothing about it. Like, why bother? Um, but the thing is that you actually, there is a lot that you can do about it. And the earlier that we find out that something is happening, there's a lot more that we can do about it. So, um, so there's this early um, kind of in-between diagnosis that we call uh, mild cognitive impairment. Um, we also refer to it as 
mild neurocognitive disorder. Um, and that is um, a pretty interesting diagnosis. A lot, of, and, and it's I think it's helpful to actually catch people at that stage. Um, a lot of people avoid getting this diagnosis because they're afraid. You know, like, like pre Alzheimer's disease. You know, my why would I want to know that? And you know, why would I want to know if I'm kind of in the early stages of this? I kind of enjoy life right now. Ignorance is bliss. Um, but but we actually have treatment recommendations for that diagnosis, and and it's not a death sentence. Um, only about 29 to 30, wait, 24 to 39% of people with mild cognitive impairment go on to develop dementia within three to 10 years. So odds are that you're not gonna go on to get dementia. It's less than a coin flip, it's less than 50-50. And there's stuff that we can do to try to keep you at that diagnostic level and, and keep you from progressing on to, um, to full-blown dementia. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. And so it sounds like with that uh, initial uh, diagnosis, are people still holding down jobs? Are they still, you know, doing their, are they living life the way Absolutely. they did before that diagnosis? Yeah. And, and that, that's actually part of the, of the diagnosis is that we, we call it dementia when the cognitive changes start to get in your way and that you start to lose independence. Um, so, so we would diagnose it as full-blown question, uh, full-blown dementia when you're having trouble with your, what we would consider your activities of daily living, like paying your bills, managing your pills. Mild neurocognitive disorder means that you still have functional independence. You're independent on these things. It doesn't mean that those things aren't harder. They probably are, but that you can remain independent with a little bit more effort, maybe some accommodations, um, those sorts of things. And and so, yeah, so, so absolutely um, you can continue working. You may have to cut back a little bit, like you may not, you know, you might want to outsource certain things, um, which we were even just kind of talking about at the beginning that, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm, I'm. <laughs> like, but yeah, my company just can, uh, switched over to a new software platform. I'm really grateful to have young staff who yes. can help us through that. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so you're not taking on every challenge you used to, but, but you can absolutely maintain a lot of independence and there's a lot of life. Um, you know, it depends on which type of dementia, every, you know, every, whatever's causing the dementia is what's really going to determine how, how much life is left after a diagnosis. But in some cases of Alzheimer's disease, people are living 30 years. If, if we're catching them in kind of the mild stages, that's a lot of life. And so absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You can, maintain a lot of independence. And, and I recommend at any stage of illness that people really focus on living. I appreciate that very much. Um, so is there, is there an average age when people come in to see you? How old are most of the people that come in for these kinds, or is it a wide range? Yeah, it's a pretty wide range. And, and we actually, um, I mean, we'll, we'll see kids even because, you know, neuropsych testing is, is broad, right? It's, it's for any cognitive skill. And so, so on the pediatric side, we're, we're diagnosing learning disabilities, attention deficit disorder. Um, so, so my clinic, we are equipped to do an assessment for anyone 16 and older. So 16 to a hundred and, um, and so we'll get a range of ages. So we get we get quite a few 30 year olds who are you know struggling at work um, that maybe 
thought they had ADHD as a kid, but they were able to cope. But now they've got a couple of kids and a demanding job and um, that sort of thing. For for dementia evals, we get those referral questions kind of at any any age. I mean, there there are people in their 30s who who are worried about getting dementia. It's rare. And, and usually, you know, as soon as you walk in our office, we'll say it's, it's probably not dementia, right? Um, but um, I think that people start to, you know, the worry increases as folks kind of get into their 50s, particularly in, in their 60s. You know, again, kind of remembering that Medicare will pay for one of these annually that, you know, I would say starting at 65, which I see in the chat, there's a, somebody asked. There is a question here, yeah. yeah. Would yeah. you recommend getting a neuropsych before um, as a baseline? And I think that's a great strategy. I, I would say that, you know, you get your Medicare card, like set up an appointment with a neuropsychologist just to get a checkup. You know, best best case scenario, we give you a clean bill of cognitive health and we get baseline data for you that we can then use you know, down the line. Yeah, because yeah. because it is standardized. It actually does help. It's not necessary. Um, we can make a diagnosis without baseline data. Um, we have ways of kind of estimating, but but it's way more accurate um, if we do have that baseline oh, data. Well, that's sure. a great. Thank you, viewer, whoever you asked that, asked yeah. that question. That was a great question. So can you share with us some of your tips to help us keep our brains strong? What, what can we do proactively um, to really, you know, get stronger mental, mental acuity and health? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually speak on this topic quite a bit and it's, it's um, a lot of the content of the book, which, uh, which will be coming out in, in July, unfortunately, not quite, not quite early 2021, but um, so. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need to update that bio. Um, so number one is your physical health, really, like working with your doctor. And that's really the number one treatment recommendation for mild neurocognitive disorder is um, a multimodal approach that, that we're looking at things like if you have cognitive risk factors that, that we really get those under control. And those include hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, um, obesity, smoking, um, even, you know, even if you're in your late seventies, quitting smoking can reduce your risk for dementia pretty remarkably. Um, depression is a huge risk factor. So, um, particularly in, in older folks, um, the targets for kind of older age are, are a little different than like, um, diff other stages of life because, you, we're affecting our risk for dementia today, all of us at, at every stage of life. How you live your life over the span, over the course of your lifespan, makes an impact on your risk for dementia. And so, so in older adults, we're really looking at at some of those those things I just listed, those health risk factors. Um, so, obesity, smoking, diabetes, depression. Um, hypertension. In middle age, the biggest fact risk factors are um, are also obesity and, um, and hypertension, but also hearing loss. So midlife hearing loss increases your risk pretty remarkably. And then in earlier life, um, education is a risk factor too. So, so for folks who don't finish the eighth grade, they tend to have a much higher risk for dementia. 
Um, being physically active is probably one of the most important ways that you can kind of proactively try to uh, reduce your odds for, for, um, for dementia. Adults grow new brain cells. We, we don't grow a lot of them, but we grow them kind of throughout our entire lifespan. They grow kind of in and around the memory centers in our brain. So, so these new brain cells play a big role in memory. Um, and you can grow more brain cells by being physically active. When people are physically active, they, they grow more brain cells. So Yay, then, right? that's encouraging. Right. So physical activity is really kind of like a big number one. And then, you know, uh, the other parts are kind of, you know, controlling those other risk factors and, and staying busy, you know, having having a really um, stimulating life. You know, people about 10 years ago when I first got into this field of brain health um, that we called it brain fitness back there. And, and we were really excited about those new brain games like Lumosity and positive yes. science. Right. And and not to say that that stuff isn't isn't important, but um but that's not all it is. So stimming your brain is helpful, um, but it's it's probably more helpful to like learn new things and have new experiences. And socializing is a really kind of efficient way of doing that, like having conversations with people, you know, exploring new things with with your friends, um, those sorts of things. So, yeah, okay. yeah, I you know I I've absolutely I've read those things and I've heard those things, and you just made reference to it, but. Um, learning new things, I'm going to say it in my layman terms or what I've read, creates new neuro, neuro pathways yeah. that are really critical. So if something's hard or it's, it's new and it's going to take more work, right? Or you've never yeah. done it. So you're learning a new recipe or you're, um, you know, whatever that is new. Is, is it really healthy for your brain? Yeah, exactly. Because what actually predicts who is going to kind of cross over that dementia threshold? We all sort of have a, a, a threshold where we're get, where our brain cells and skills are going to kind of drop below that to where we start to show those symptoms of dementia that are, you know, bad enough to kind of start getting in our way. And the biggest predictor of when of who's going to cross over that threshold is actually how much brain you have left over. Mm -hmm. uh, we call it cognitive reserve. It's mm -hmm. a it's a theory that that has kind of come out of, of neuroscience. And, and so I call it your brain's 401k, because it's kind of quite literally like your brain's retirement. I like account, that. Right? Yeah. yeah. Right. And so and being so being physically active, learning new things, these are ways that you can like actively invest in your brain 401k, you're building, you're growing new brain cells, you're producing new connections. And, and so you're kind of building up all those different pathways, it's more for you to lose before you kind of cross over that that threshold. And so so that can kind of create a buffer for you. Um, and, and yeah, and really reduce your risk. And And you're right, you know, if you in order to kind of build those new pathways, you need to kind of keep doing new things. You need to have a lot of novelty, a lot of variety, and a lot of challenge. Because if you're doing the same old thing, then you're really kind of stimming the old pathways that were there already. So it's all about kind of trying to grow as many new pathways as you can. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think that that's very exciting. You know, anything. So I've given some talks about different kinds of dementias and things. And... Um, I, I do recall very clearly one audience member, I will never forget, 
who, in uh, part of the presentation, and I, I certainly don't have your credentials, but I have a lot of years experience working yeah. with people with dementia, and going through training and learning just enough. And it's, and um, this one of the things I, I presented in my presentation is, you know, um, what is normal aging? Mm -hmm. What are some of the characteristics of normal aging? And what are some of the characteristics of dementia? And then what are some of the things that you can, can do to prevent it? And this one gentleman came up to me after the presentation, he was literally crying. And he was crying because I was able to, I was talking about some of the things you could do proactively. Yeah. Now, whether that was going to help him or not, you know, who knows, but he had not, he was grateful. He was so grateful to hear that there's something proactive and he and his wife both. Um, we're like, oh my gosh, we're going to start doing this right away. We're going to eat better. We're going to start exercising. We're, we're going to start to learn new things. And it was really, um, you know, that's very hopeful. Yeah. And that, and that, uh, and I do think, and you and I talked about this before this talk, and I'm sure you see this. And I think a lot of the people, um, who are listening in, see this is really just not wanting to know because it's not feeling like there's no hope. And there's nothing I can do about it. But if you now everyone understands that there's hope. Um, and there's a lot you can do about it. Right. I mean, a big focus is on like MCI stabilization or even if you're in the early stage. Say that one more time. What is a that? big focus is on what we would call MCI stabilization, getting people stabilized at that mild cognitive impairment peak, you know, where they're where they are um, independent. And, and, and kind of staying there for as long as possible. Or if you're already crossed that dementia threshold, um, the goal is to really try to keep people in the early stages too, so that, because you don't lose all your skills at once in, in most cases. And, and, and there's also, I mean, if we catch things in the early stages, then we can help people kind of practice up um, activities of daily living, like things that'll, that maybe you take over some of the jobs in your household that are going to kind of take over some of the stress from your caregiver. Cause that's when people, that's when, that's when dementia care gets expensive is when the caregiver burns out usually, right? Like the care partner. And, um, and so I'll say to folks, you know, like, let's say, you know, I don't know if you were like an, uh, an attorney your whole life and you've been being an attorney 80 hours a week, that meant that somebody else in your life might've been like the dishwasher unloader, the laundry folder, the coffee maker. So, so now you're not lawyering 80 hours a week. This is a really great time to kind of take over some of those, um, those duties, you know, so that you can be in charge of the laundry. And then that means that your caregiver is not, taking care of you and doing all these other ADLs. So, so it's a, a way to kind of, you know, divide and conquer um, activities of daily living. And because, because you can still learn things in the early stages. So, but it's really important that we catch it at that point. Cause once yeah. we get to the moderate to severe, then it is more about kind of providing daily care and, and you, and you really can't pick up new skills. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's really encouraging. Well, oh, we're out of time. <laughs> I told you it would go by quick. Right. That's right. Um, it was really fun. It was really fun. It was very, it was a joy to meet you and really great to listen and learn from you. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll forward sometimes questions come afterwards and we'll, we'll forward those all to you. Uh, yeah. And such an important field. I, I so appreciate what you and your colleagues are doing and uh, uh very hopeful. I mean, certainly there's not the 
the cure that we're all looking for, for things like Alzheimer's and things like that. But at least if you can educate yourself and understand and catch things early and know that you can do something about it is, is incredibly hopeful. So yeah. just because there's not a pill doesn't mean there aren't treatments. So yeah, have yeah. Those. that's right. Yeah. Well, a good way to close. That's thank right. you so much. Thank you, Julie. Thank it was you. really my pleasure.